Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Krishan Kupchand, and my guest today is Zach Marks, the founder of Gia Finance. This is a crypto-enabled lending platform that targets SMEs in emerging markets. Now, Zach's spent most of his life working in what I would argue are some of the world's most dynamic regions out there, um, such as you know Nairobi, Kenya, uh, India, etc. And I'm excited to learn more about him. Shooting from the hip very quickly, Zach, can you tell us about the origin story behind Gia, plus walk us through kind of how it works and what the kind of dynamics behind it are? For sure. Happy to be here, Krishan. Hello, Frontier Markets fam. Um, yeah, the story of how Gia got started, I guess, I mean, I'll tell my story because in a lot of ways, whenever we're talking with founder of a company, a lot of times it's like my journey that, that helped us get here. Um, I, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm originally from the U.S., not a frontier market uh, from Center City, Philadelphia, but I, the way I got working in emerging markets really was out of my personal desire to travel the world and eat street food in new parts of uh, parts of the world. So, you know, I began my life after college teaching English um, because that was the best way for a U.S. college grad with no real skills to hop around the globe. So I got to teach in schools in Brazil and in Ethiopia and in India. And, um, you know, when I was teaching at the school in India, I got really close with the Chaiwala at my school. Chaiwala is a guy who serves samosas and chai and, just, you know, runs a basically, it's like a little tiny coffee shop, just a little chai stand uh, on the street. And this guy ran a really good business. I mean, he definitely was turning a healthy profit for himself, um, supporting his family. He was employing a couple people. And I knew he wanted to expand. He wanted to open a new shop. And he just couldn't access financing to do that. And it's not like he needed much. He needed about like $1,000 to buy the basics. And even that he couldn't get access to. And um, being from Philadelphia, I didn't really understand all about the dynamics of why, but I looked into this a little bit. And simple enough, and if you ask an Indian bank why they wouldn't give a loan to Ramesh and why they, the Chaiwala and why, you know, Indian banks probably don't serve a lot of very small businesses like this. Uh, they'd say a couple things. One, they might say there's no data to underwrite Ramesh. I have no idea how many cups of chai this guy sells in a day. Uh, two, they might say it's not really worth my time. Like he needs a couple hundred bucks to buy some milk and sugar and like a couple chairs. Like it's just, it'll cost me more than that just to go and meet this guy and underwrite him and take his collateral, right? Um, so because of these basic challenges, uh, we have a $5 trillion credit gap for small businesses in emerging markets. And that is sort of like the problem statement that I sort of driven my career ever since I moved on from teaching English. So my first job after teaching, I was working as a management consultant and I worked on a lot of traditional microfinance programs. So folks who are listening to this are probably very familiar with the Grameen Bank model of working with community finance groups where people sort of save and borrow together in these common pools of money. And, um, and there's, there's the beautiful thing about these communities is, you know, there's shared accountability. So say you and I were in a group together, if you default, I'm on the hook for you, but there's also shared upside, right? If you repay, then I'm, I'm earning that upside. And, um, that's a really beautiful model that works at a relatively small scale. You know, most of these groups, maybe they're 15 or 20 people, but once they get bigger than that, they sort of fall apart. There's not as much trust, um, and it's really, they're really, frankly, these, these groups are expensive for microfinance institutions to operate. And so in search of a more scalable solution, I started working in what I think is like microfinance 2.0, like the fintech lending boom. And so I, 
one of the early employees at a company called Tala, which um, was really the pioneering mobile lending app. So now there are hundreds of these companies around the world um, that basically use phone data to underwrite people for, for really small loans. Um, and that's the basic concept, right? It's like, imagine there's billions of people in the world with no credit score, but they have a phone and your phone has all this data about you. Well, we just give you a, an app you can download and give us access to your phone data. We use that to underwrite you. So that really solved the scale problem. In the six years I was at this company, I think we grew from you know, a handful of borrowers to six million borrowers around Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Um, and that company's still doing really good stuff. But I think what we totally lost was the beauty and benefits of community and community ownership that we saw in these community finance groups. And um, I even heard from our borrowers in, like in Kenya, most of our borrowers were in SACOs. A SACO is a savings and credit cooperative. And they'd say, hey, in my, in my SACO, when I repay, I put my, then I put my money in and I, you know, I, I have shares. At the end of the year, I get dividends and I'm an owner. Um, and I've been taking your loans for a while, so can I have shares? And there's no great way for a U.S. like privately held tech company to distribute ownership around the globe. Um, I mean, like issuing like fractional shares, you could like you know you know like write a board resolution every time someone like puts some money. It's just too tricky to do. But if you represent ownership on chain with a token, and that token has claimed a, a stream of on chain revenues, you can really distribute ownership quite efficiently and effectively around the world. You can do it by virtue of the concept of program, programmable money, you can do it in a pretty cool way. So you can say, hey, if, you know, Krishan runs a chai stand in India and he takes a loan and repays, we automatically trigger some token reward to him. And that token reward can unlock lower interest rates or higher loan amounts or longer repayment periods. And um, we can even take on take some of the things that he does offline already, like in his local savings and credit cooperative. He probably, if he wants to introduce a new, a new friend to take a loan, he put up collateral. And when he does that today, you know, he doesn't get any rewards if his friend repays, but if he stakes his GIA tokens on that re, uh, that new friend, then he can get even more rewards since he's really underwriting that loan. And so that's really what we're doing. The idea is to take the basic, you know, fintech borrower-lender kind of transactional relationship where a customer is just sort of on the end of this one-way transaction to turning that customer into a, 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 a member of a community. And so they're really an owner and a builder of this community um, and have a stake in its upside. So that is like the story of how I came to, I guess that's like my career kind of and how I went from, I think, like microfinance one, two to what I think is like microfinance 3.0 with Gia. Wonderful. So two particular things that I think really stand out there in terms of lessons to internalize. One is the kind of localization metaphors. You mentioned the kind of savings association that existed in, in Kenya. And I think in another piece, you may have mentioned some other forms of these that exist in different countries and cultures. Um, what are some of the other names for these types of um, uh, community yeah. savings organizations? I mean, they, and they work very differently in different places because, you know, money finances is like one of this like core cultural things we do as people that like we've been doing. I mean, it's like a, it's a thing that money is pretty much present in most societies in the world. Like if you read like anthropology books, like there's some concept of money going back a long, long way and around the world. But the way people necessarily organize themselves can be influenced by religion or gender norms or like what drives the local economy, like whether it's fishing or mining or trading or whatever, right? Like you see a lot more money develop in certain places and like banking came up faster in certain places where it was sort of more necessary. Um, so what the, the groups that I'm most familiar with 
Um, in Kenya, I mentioned there, the formalized ones are called SACOs, the Savings and Credit Cooperative, although the, informally pretty much everyone is in a CHAMA, which is a just like a, an informal group. Um, in India, they're called CHIT funds. In the Philippines, they're called Paluagan. And in Mexico and Latin America, they're often called Tandas. They have different names in different places, and they all kind of it's, it's not even, I don't even think you can generalize and say, oh, a Kenyan chama works like this and a Mexican tanda works like this. Because often it's even like community by community. Often like people just sort of come up with the rules and then they follow them that way. I think the most common construction is to do like, is what's called like a merry-go-round like approach or like a ROSCA, a rotating savings and credit association. And in those, the way it works is maybe it's like me and you and say there's like 10 of our friends, right? And we probably all know each other and have a lot of trust already. Like maybe we're all traders in the same market or it's often actually used with by women like as a as sort of like a separate like savings savings mechanism apart from their husbands for example and they might be i mean in like high society in india like women are all in like these kitty parties where they sort of like run these groups on their own and often like the proceeds are just used to kind of like throw like a fun social event but um in in general the way those rotating groups work is maybe me you and 10 of our friends every week we agree we're going to put in a hundred dollars into the pot and that's sort of a way to like force us all to save because it's hard to save but it's sort of like this social pressure or accountability thing that we know we want to sign up for because it makes us better right that like we're all going to save a hundred dollars and then every week one of the members gets the gets the bounty gets like the pot right so let's say there's 10 of us and there's a hundred what is that equal that's like uh a thousand dollars so like we each get a thousand dollars or the, you know, once, once, once a week or once a month or whatever the distribution mechanism is. And the reason that can be really helpful is let's say, you know, you want to buy something for the household, like a television, but it's just like really hard for you to like actually save up enough money for that. Because every time you get some money in money's got to go out because you got to pay school fees, you got to pay for your kids clothing or whatever. Um, this sort of helps you with that, that money timing problem. Um, and then you're sort of like, you know, the, the community is helping you. So that's sort of like how a basic Roscoe works. Um, they work in other ways as well, uh, where like sometimes the groups just simply like will back a loan for someone. Like it'll be as simple as, hey, we come together and we meet. And separate from that merry-go-round, I just say to you, hey, guys, I've got a really good business opportunity. I run a small clothing shop and there's a supplier coming into town and he's got like whatever. Uh, you know, a thousand dollars worth of extra merchandise that he's going to sell at like half price because he just wants to get rid of it. I want to jump on this opportunity, but I don't have a thousand dollars. Will you guys back me at a thousand dollars? And everyone might say, yeah, we've got you. And maybe they even do it interest free because they're all friends. Or maybe they say, yeah, we'll do it at 3% because that's how we all have agreed that whenever anyone wants to take a loan from this group, we all charge 3%. And so you sort of see how these groups, I mean, they're really like rooted in just human interpersonal relationships. And you know, in, in a beautiful world, that would be enough for, to like make the world go around. Like we don't, we shouldn't need external financial institutions coming in, like extracting value from the community. The problem is most communities don't have enough capital to solve all of their needs. And, you know, once these groups get big enough that they could aggregate enough capital, you sort of like lose the, the social, the social um, enforcement power. And so what you do see all the time, I mean, I think like in Kenya, chamas and are, are sort of synonymous with well i shouldn't say this they're not synonymous with scams but there often are scams where you know people put their money in and expect that you know in the when the merry-go-round comes to them 
it's their turn to get it and the the group falls apart by the time it gets there or someone sort of runs away with the money um and so that is obviously a challenge for these groups wow i um when I, when I think of kind of like these localization metaphors, um, as you mentioned, the Chamas, one project that comes to mind that's somewhat crypto adjacent is uh, in India, there's this app called Gulak uh, Money. And um, in, in India is known for, as, as you obviously very well know as well, um, it's savings being aggregated in large part in kind of gold and jewelry. And um, the on-ramp to kind of get a more kind of liquid form of savings is digital gold. And I'm not talking about Bitcoin in this context, but it's, you know, we'll round up, you know, pennies on your kind of expenditure or whatever to go towards gold. And then hopefully that can act like the behavioral on ramp to enable individuals to kind of, you know, move further towards kind of, you know, equities or, or just other types of, you know, fixed income, et cetera, that may be a bit more productive for the economy or improve, improve returns for them as well. Really interesting. So uh, with this app, it's like sort of a roundup mechanism. Whenever someone spends, it like takes some and it invests in digital gold for them, basically. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Because yeah. you know, think about even the concept of investing in gold. What you're doing is you're literally trying to harden your money. Like you're making it like harder for you to spend it, right? Like it's like oh yes, tying it up in this thing that's over there. I mean, that's where you know the the oldest forms of money, you know, in the barter and trade systems. It's not even money. It's just like livestock. Like you put your money in a cow. Because that way you, you're not going to spend your that money on like alcohol or something you didn't want to spend it on because it's tied up in the cow, right? Um, anyway, it's pretty cool. Thanks for no, sharing definitely. that. So, uh, another one you may find interesting is there's this guy, I'm sure you're also familiar with, Nick Sharbo, the smart contract guy. And oh, um, he wrote about how uh, back in the day, and when I say back in the day, I mean like, you know, several thousand years ago, um, they, uh, about a few hundred years ago, actually, probably, um, they had this thing where the storage of wealth was based on kind of how complicated the jewelry you created from shells were. And I, they called it kind of like wankums. And uh, in, in the US, when uh, they had a shortage of like kind of actual currency, they reverted back to what was essentially like the Native Americans, like storage of wealth, which were these types of shells. And you'd have shops that were like, well, we accept this as well. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's neat to think about these different cultures of money. Um, if, if we're kind of zooming out of it and moving on, I guess, um, when you're thinking of crypto's role in emerging markets and its ability to, you know, have a more nuanced take on incorporating cultural metaphors into its models, but also its ability to just accelerate, you know, the formation of capital as a whole in places where there may be capital deficiencies. What are your thoughts on the other players that are participating in this market right now, or that are trying to kind of, you know, tackle problems that are specific to emerging frontier and developing markets as opposed to developed markets? Yeah. Well, okay. So I'll, I'll say, so the future, I think that the future that I imagine and that I think probably a lot of people who are interested in crypto or even just like finance in general imagine is this world where, you know, everyone who had some money just sitting around and just like close their eyes and put it up and be like, hey, take my money and let me get a return on it. I don't really need to know much more about it. And anyone anywhere in the world who has a use for that money, like someone running a chai stand in India can be like, yep, I need that money. I'll put it to use and I'll give a good return and I'll take it and I'll give it back. Like, <coughs> excuse me, that's the that's like the magic future where like, if ever, you know, the money can just flow freely without too many transaction costs across borders or whatever. 
we're like really far from that for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is sort of like the underwriting challenge I mentioned earlier. And in a lot of ways, what we're a lot of the work we're doing at GIA is it's not like as sexy crypto stuff. It's just like basic fintech lending, like trying to use data that other lenders aren't using to underwrite small businesses um, to provide access to capital. But other kind of interesting projects in the crypto world are ones which are trying to sort of basically create local denominated stable coins. Um, and I think one thing that's really interesting, so in, in Africa, for example, you have this challenge that there's very little liquidity for African currency to African currency transactions. So like if you want to take, like say you're a trader in like Nigeria and you oh, want to buy something just from a country like next door from like Togo or something, right? In order to like move from the two currencies, you often have to go into dollars, right? And so then basically what's happening for you to do just like some simple trade with your neighbor, maybe whatever, a hundred miles away, you actually have to involve some banker thousands of miles away in London or Dubai. And that's just like money that's leaking out of the system. Um, it shouldn't be that way, obviously. I mean, we have a, like a US dollar ruled financial system and it's fine to have like one currency be the dominant one, but it shouldn't be so dominant that like you have to basically pay a tax in that, you know, just to do some basic transaction. And so I think there's, so one project I'll give a shout out to is called Kanza Finance. I think they're doing really interesting work. Um, in Asia, there's, a, there's one called Blue Jay Finance. And there's, I mean, I know there are, plenty of projects out there so i don't want to like act like i'm not including them all I just happen these guys just happen to be my friends and i really admire what they're doing but um the idea of the coming up with local denominated stable coins basically lets you know lets you have more control of your financial destiny without having to pay this like external middleman just to do business in your own geography and i think that's a really cool use of crypto i think that's fantastic because Previously, my model was, okay, one of the core uh, calls to action that crypto brings to uh, currency systems globally is, as you've seen in the last you know, year, or at least even the last decade, if you look at certain countries, the you know, harrowing effects of um, just rapid inflation. So if you look at, say, Pakistan, or even you know, what Kenya's going through right now, if I'm not mistaken, or, the Ni or um, uh, Nigeria in particular, actually. Um, it's it, it you know people's savings just get ravaged through and the ability to kind of have a stabilized system is 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 very difficult and one of the uh, calls to action so to speak and I've seen a couple of projects that talk about this is the you know ability to have a deflationary currency economics when you mm. use native currencies to uh, enable again these safe places to store your money be it Bitcoin etc um, but what you've described is actually far more interesting here which is the ability to like actually reduce your currency outflows for dollars, which are already a scarce asset in these ecosystems. Uh, that's, that's incredibly important. And it taps into the kind of the, a core competency of crypto, which is the ability to provide and produce liquidity through uh, AMMs, et cetera. Uh, fascinating. Sure. I mean, and in a lot of ways, I mean, all this stuff is really exciting ideas on paper. and uh, But I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of this stuff does sort of still like, live in like the stuff of light papers, like you need, I think you need to get beyond the like crypto native, like DGen audience to like make these things a reality. And you have to get traditional finance on board because that's where like most of the money in our world sits. Um, and so I actually think it's a pretty cool, exciting time in that we're, we're starting, I mean, obviously it's like very polarizing within the crypto community. A lot of people who are just like crypto native like why are we like even involving banks the banks are the reason why we're here like doing what we're doing it's like to provide a completely different alternative model to them 
I guess I'm sort of more of an incrementalist and I'm like, okay with the idea that big institutions are going to adopt some blockchain technologies and participate in these ecosystems to make them work better. Because ultimately, I mean, what drove me to the space, I'm not sort of from like the anarcho-libertarian side of crypto. I'm more just like very practical, like how do we provide Ramesh the Chaiwala with a loan? Like, let's just like figure out a way that makes sense. And if crypto is a tool for that, I'm all here for it. Awesome. So you spent some time in the Philippines recently. Is that one of your top three markets for GIA? <clears throat> Pardon me. Yes, it is. So I just, okay. uh, yeah, apologies. I, um, yes, I, I just got, I actually, right now I'm here in Sweden with my Fika, my, uh, my, my coffee. I'm, I'm, I'm here for personal visiting uh, girlfriend for other reasons, but I was just in Manila for the last month. And um, the Philippines is one of our first markets. Um, it's, it's a place I happen to have worked for much of the last decade. Um, but it's also, I think, a really great market to begin exploring what we're doing. I mean, it's I mean, by like it's by virtue of its of its market. It's a it's a large market. It's about a hundred million people, very young and smartphone digitally savvy. I mean, you saw way you've seen way higher like crypto adoption there than in a lot of other markets. Part of that was sort of this whole play to earn craze. A lot of people sort of read about with like Axie Infinity and a lot of those sort of like bubbles perhaps have crashed. But you do have a, a young young populace who's really interested in crypto things that said our product there does not it's not like crypto forward for the most part what we're doing is providing basic inventory financing for small businesses the primary segment is what what are called sorry sorry stores which is just like a local convenience store with a little bit of everything like maybe it sells some groceries maybe it sells like candies and snacks uh, maybe it sells, you know, one of our first ones, it happens to be next to a school. So she sells a lot of like school supplies, but sorry, sorry. It's like a little bit of everything. Um, for the, for most of our, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I mean, the user flow for them, um, the way we're acquiring most of these borrowers actually is we work with wholesalers and distributors and suppliers that supply these sorry, sorry stores. So they have a ton of data on these sorry, sorry stores that's just not being used for underwriting right now. Like they wow. know, Hey, like they know Christelle the sorry sorry store owner in payatas she has been buying a thousand dollars worth of supplies every single week for the last like three years and here's exactly what she buys um they could of course use that to underwrite themselves but for the most part if you're running a logistics like wholesale business you don't want to be a lender you don't want to be in that business because it's it's actually not as simple as just like oh look they buy things so let's give them some of it on credit um they're actually like you have to like build in some some smart analytics into determining who you're going to give financing to and up to how much. And for the most part, um, that's how the Sorry Sorry stores encounter GIA for the first time. It's when they want to buy something from their supplier and the supplier says, hey, you can finance this with GIA. And pretty much everyone wants to access financing. Already what they're doing informally is financing their their business, sometimes with local lenders who are often called like the five six because it's you, you borrow 5,000, you pay back 6,000. So it's like a 20% usually per, per month interest rate. Um, and we come in and provide a much more affordable product. Like our, our average uh, cost is about 3%. And actually a really interesting thing, I'll, I'll just tell one story about one of our borrowers I met. Her name is Rosalyn. So she, I mean, she has a pretty inspiring story. Probably just worth sharing. Like this is, I, I think like these kind of like entrepreneurs are people who should be like getting like cover of Forbes recognition more. Because uh, like I think it's just like, you know, it's like the people who are like really hustling, make their community better, feed their families, right? Um, so I'd call it, Rosalyn, a super negociante. Negociante is like a entrepreneur in uh, Tagalog. Um, Ali comes, obviously comes from Spanish. Um, so 
she basically got to Man- she came to Manila from a small province, like a small island, like like a fourteen hour boat ride away from Manila, and she started out working in a in a hotel, and then sort of saved up enough money and was like, I want to be my own boss. So she gets this little like store on the corner in this neighborhood called Payatas and sort of north of Manila, and it's like maybe a tr- traditionally known as like kind of like a rougher neighborhood. Um, she starts out just by doing like basic like grocery, like she's selling like canned goods and potato chips and rice and that sort of thing. Um, then she sort of, you know, she, like, like any entrepreneur, she like understands what resources are around her. So her sister happens to be a good tailor. So she gets her sister to like start like making dresses. And there's a lot of like, there's a, there's a religious community in the Philippines that like they all wear dresses. So she's like selling like girls dresses. Um, then she uses, since she's already like in the clothing vertical, she starts using her GIA financing to expand even more and like be once she's she's uses our initial you know financing as like supplier financing from her you know sorry sorry grocery store financing but then because she's built up a record we can actually extend her some capital like in cash separately which obviously has a higher risk she uses that to do ukai ukai which is like uh secondhand i forget what that means in tagalog but it's like basically secondhand clothing so like basically she'll buy like a massive like like call, call it like a 500 pound box that just comes from America, because like Americans like have like, donated some clothing that didn't get sold at the secondhand store, just get like, dumped in emerging markets. So she buys these. Maybe it's like a T-shirt at like effectively like ten cents per shirt, and then she does like this Facebook live stream where she like puts the stuff on oh, and she can sell it at like a ten x markup, right? And she sells a ten cent shirt for a dollar or whatever it is. Then this is the kind of coolest bit. The reason I mentioned the five six is so that like, the the local cost of capital if you want to take money from a local lender is like 20 percent, and she happens to be across the street from a group of um like rickshaw drivers they all just that's like their rickshaw station and so yeah so first of all she sells these guys like beer because she has beer and they're all just like hanging out and at night they want to drink she also lends to them she lends she does five six so she gets gia capital at three percent and then she just like <laughs> arbitraging like just like you know, lending on to them at 20%. So making like a healthy profit there. And she has such a great, like, I mean, we talked about like social pressure and social underwriting. She has this um, sign on her, on her, on the side of her shop. It's like a big, you know, she writes it out. And basically the way her loans work is she gives out 5,000 and you repay 200 a day for 30 days. So you'll pay back 6,000. And so it's daily repayment. And if you miss a day of repayment, she writes a letter for every day you miss, she writes a letter of your name. So let's say like, Krisha, oh. I gave you a loan on month. You missed my missed one day. I write K. You missed the next day. I write R. Next next day I. So like by day three, everyone's like, oh my god, Krishan is fucking up. He's like not repaying his loan. We're gonna like, and they sort of like, you know. Then there's like the social pressure. It's like, and because like, I think she even writes on her sign. It's like, don't talk to this person or something. Um, and um, anyway, I guess I, I share that story to say like, this is someone who's. Like she's working super hard. She has this like clear entrepreneurial energy. Um, and like, what has she been missing? I guess just like access to some fair financing. We're able to come into her life somehow. And now, you know, at least she's like, she's making way higher profit margins and she's able to expand these new business lines. Um, that's sort of like what finance is, is meant to do. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that story. What an incredible story, Zach. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm... I'm reminded of, so my, my grandfather, he uh, started a business in Gibraltar um, when he was younger as well. And this was like after World War II. And uh, I'm reminded of, I was, I was there a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things I enjoyed very much was I was spending time with my auntie and she was sharing stories 
of the community that surrounded that. And these are a type of um, person from North India called Sindhis. And they were talking about some of the uh, cultural mechanisms that were used to enhance the education when it comes to entrepreneurship, enhance kind of network building as a whole cohesion, and therefore that led to the success of other entrepreneurs within the community mm. as well. And I think, you know, what you've described here touches upon these types of patterns, which, you know, can range from the more formalized version in Silicon Valley in the form of accelerators, right? right. And it can also be something as simple as, you know, these places such as the classic bar that everyone knows who is kind of being borrowed from slash led to, etc. Uh, yeah. I, th I think that's incredibly cool. One thing I want to kind of highlight here that I particularly like about Jia's structure is the way in which the kind of tokenomics lends to individuals being incentivized to do things that are kind of positive sum in some sense, um, mm. where it's like, oh, you know, engage in these behaviors that create certain positive externalities that are somehow captured by the token in some form of, or way. Yeah. Another example of that type of thing, I guess. For sure. I mean, the idea that, I mean, the idea of the token and the idea of this economy we're trying to create also it's you know it's not like it's not like magic internet money like crazy economics it's just basically slightly tweaking the value distribution like when you're lending what is the value that's created it's like you lend money at some you lend a hundred dollars and you're charging ten percent so a hundred ten dollars coming back so ten dollars is some value that's being created somehow like by someone yeah. right by the person who's repaying all we're kind of doing with like the token is just sort of like shifting a little bit where that $10 gets captured, right? I mean, the $10 still gets paid back to the lender, but the equity, like sort of the ownership of the, like the, of the, of the protocol that has claimed this future discounted cash flows of lending revenues, that's just owned now a little bit by the borrower, right? So that like that borrower has just a bit more reason to want to repay as opposed to being like, well, you're one of like hundreds of lenders I've been taking money from. Why should I care about you? Um, and, I just think that's like a bit more of like a fair way to do business, especially because I mean, I mean, as a, I'm glad you shared your like Cindy heritage. I mean, as a, I'm as as a Jew, like I'm very familiar with, you know, historic anti-Semitic tropes about like Jews controlling banks and finance. And why do, I mean, apart from like the just general like hatred and like racism and prejudice that's like built into our like human bodies, like I think part of the reason why people don't like bankers or don't like the banks or don't like the people controlling finances. They just see it as like, why does like, why does some other institution that's not me get to sort of like control my access to the future? Like I want a piece of that and I want to own some of that. And um, I think there's just something more fair about like sharing that value around the world. Um, anyway, without getting into, I, I don't know how I got down into like Jewish and community politics, but yeah, anyway, there we go. Uh, it, it, it deeply resonates. Um, so shifting gears here a bit, you touched upon this idea of, you know, some very valuable ideas within crypto getting stuck in the light paper and not getting out because obviously it's tough to solve operational problems, to kind of distribute a product, to understand who you're kind of getting it to, um, and just as you know, important is the kind of consumer-facing nature of it, onboarding, um, stickiness, et cetera. A hard set of things to kind of get right. I'm wondering, how have you thought about the operational work over the last year or so when it comes to Jia? And what are some of the things that you think others can kind of learn from the process you've run after you've described that process? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing with the actual with our borrowers, like with these sorry, sorry stories in the Philippines, for example, is um, 
for now, a lot of the crypto is sort of abstracted. So it is true that right now we 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 source capital on chain. So we've launched a liquidity pool on chain where people deploy their stable coins. But then we handle like the off ramping for the borrowers. So when Rosalind takes a loan from us, she doesn't like she doesn't have a crypto wallet. She doesn't necessarily know that like money is being off ramped today, right? Because we and our whole thing is just like let's meet people where they are. You know what do they, what do they have a need for today? It's liquidity. It's not like it's not like Crypto products aren't out there in the Philippines. That like, be, and they, and like the only reason Chris uh, Roslyn doesn't have one is because no one's like come up with a crypto product for the Philippines. Like, no, there's plenty of them. They just don't meet Roslyn where her need is today. And what her need is today is for liquidity. We feel that like once we've built this trust of providing some fair financing in fiat currency, then we can begin to introduce like other digital assets and like begin to sort of be there like passport to the on-chain economy and so the first thing that will happen with that is when they get a gia token as their rewards token and it's it's worth like mentioning just since you talked about like things being trapped in like light papers right like the gia token is not yet live so what is live what what today what roslyn's getting is gia points or gia coins and that's like our way of like running some product experiments to see what we think like gia token behavior will be when the token's launched and obviously for any entrepreneur looking at like launching a token uh like any 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 token based economy like you kind of only get one shot at it and it depends on so many things going right like the market conditions have to be the right like time for it it's like doing an ipo you don't want to like do an ipo in the middle of a bear market and like right now is not the best time to like do a token offering um but also we want to make sure we understand how borrowers are going to interact with this thing and so what we've been doing is basically running different experiments where we say, okay, well, like if you get this many GIA points, like what is the point at which it's more advantageous for you to keep your points within the economy versus just cashing out immediately for pesos, right? Because the if you think about like, hey, I can give you, all right, for if this you have one GIA token, you can either cash it out for one Philippine peso or you can get one Philippine peso off your next interest rate. If it's one-to-one, you're probably just going to cash it out because you're liquid. we already know liquidity is your problem, right? So why are you going to mm-hmm. hold on to it? But if we can structure it a little bit differently where it's, okay, you know, you can cash it out for one peso or you can get two pesos off your next interest, your next interest payment. Like, does that make you want to hold on to it? Um, how do we sort of uh, communicate the sort of social aspects? So how do we make it that, how, how do we, how do we um, communicate that you can take these points and stake them on the success of your cousin coming into the economy and repaying? Uh, so that's, we're, we're doing a lot of interesting experiments right now that I'm like keenly observing to see. You know, what does it take to get people to use these points in this social way? Um, but I think that's sort of, it, it is important to like share like what is going on behind the details, right? It's like real product experiments. You can't just like write it on a light paper and hope it's like going to be like, you know, this like magic thing. Because if it was that easy, like someone would have obviously done it before, right? There's a lot of grinding and testing and iterating. And that's what we're doing right now. Fantastic. Um Going back to a role that I'm sure has shaped the way in which you've kind of operationally constructed GIA as an organization thus far, uh, what are some lessons that you learned from running the new markets motion at um, Tala? Yeah, well, a lot of it is, I'll, I keep going back to like the human side of things because I think that is so crucial. Like it is um, one of the beautiful things about like human societies, like we're very different in different parts of the world. And so like managing a team, like as an American, we have like different working norms than people do say in India or in Kenya or in the Philippines. And so a lot of like my time at Tala was frankly just like learning the lessons of how to be a like 
cross-culturally competent manager. Um, and, you know, things that, and this is stuff that like probably anyone who's like, whatever, taking like a basic like, business school class on this stuff can like read about, but like until you actually like, live it and like understand, huh, this engineer is telling me it's going to take this long, but I know he's just telling me that to please me. And so I actually have to like dig a bit deeper to figure out how long it's actually going to take. For example, like those kind of lessons are really crucial. I think it's really difficult to sort of simulate that in like an MBA classroom. You actually have to live it. Um, other stuff, which probably goes without saying for anyone who's worked in emerging markets is just like understanding the pace and like unexpected delays that will come when working with regulators or partners. Um, you know, at Tala, we, it, I, I, I've gone through the, the, the learning lessons of like how long it takes to get a license that you thought would take three months because the lawyers and all the best, you know, all the, all the, all the experts in the market told you, yep, it's three months. You just do this and then it's done. When of course, no, it's really like 12 months with a lot of hiccups along the way. Um, or working with a partner to launch a product, you know, it seems like, oh, it should be as simple as they just share some data. We plug into their app, boom, you launch the product. Of course, it's not really that simple. So a lot of, you know, the, those lessons have been really helpful for me just like making more proper estimates of what things are going to take to get things launched. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that, that's probably, that's, that's some of what's been helpful. Okay, fantastic. I uh, really enjoyed this piece by somebody else who runs the um, who runs logistic parks um, in the Middle East and North Africa, and um, he was talking about their expansion from Middle East and North Africa to more Sub-Saharan Africa as well. And he said that you know Murphy's Law, uh, what can go wrong will go wrong, okay, is yeah. actually the underlying uh, ethos in many of these markets. But if you get through it, you can really deliver some very impactful uh, projects and outcomes. Um, one thing sure. I'm continually curious about is like, what does it mean for myself to develop that muscle and understanding as someone who's you know not really worked in any of these markets just yet, but is hoping to learn. So I appreciate you sharing that um, with me. Uh, yeah. Final question. If, if you have anything else to say on that, feel free to. No, no, no. I was just going to say like for anyone like interested in this space, I, I think you do have to like, especially because you know, you're relatively young, early in your career. Like, I think the best thing you can do is just like go to, you know, find a, find a company working in some emerging market and like just go work for them for a little while. And like probably in six months working there, you like come back with like a whole new outlook on how the stuff really works. I think that's part of the plan here. Um, okay, cool. So final question then in that case is, are there any calls to actions for our listeners or are there any resources or side quests that you want to kind yes. of send us on? Yes. Thank you so much for giving that chance. So the first thing I'd say is um, the easy, probably the most like simple, obvious way for someone sitting in, you know, someone who's not a small business owner in Kenya or the Philippines, because those are the two markets we're operating in right now. Um, the best way to participate is by being an LP in one, in, in, in a GIA liquidity pool. So we actually just, we just, fully subscribed our last one it's on um it's on huma finance and the uh the link maybe i can just like share it in your in your uh in your show notes or whatever but like uh, there's a um so basically the way that works is unfortunately for right now it's just for accredited investors so if you're not accredited we can't take your money just yet but for accredited investors you can deploy your us dollar stable coins um and then that we give you know give you a healthy return as well as um some future like Gia token rewards. Um, and sort of right now, since the pool is fully subscribed, there's an investor form. If you just go to Gia.xyz 
and hit invest with Gia. You'll just fill out and it'll take like two minutes to just like give your basic info and then we can have a chat. Of course, you can just reach out to me, Zach at Gia.xyz. Um, I think a great thing I'd love to ask is if you guys can follow us on Twitter at Gia underscore DeFi, then you'll sort of follow along with the developments of the protocol. Um, if there's any listeners who are based in emerging markets or have sort of like networks of small business in emerging markets that need financing, and I think like the most easy ones to sort of imagine is like, do you sell something to a large network of small businesses that need financing? Or like, do you have like a point of sale or inventory management software and you want to monetize that data by turning it into financing? Please do reach out. Um, Zach at Gia.xyz works just fine. And um yeah, and if you know, if you'd like to work with us, if you like are interested in, you know, putting your skills to this sort of global challenge of expanding financial access, you know, reach out to us, careers at gia.xyz. We're sort of like always on the lookout for great talent who has a hunger for solving this challenge. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Zach. It's uh I look forward to kind of keeping up with the journey. And uh yeah, it's been fantastic. Thanks so much, Krishan. Appreciate your time today.